Um, hey, it's always good to be here uh, with all of you. Thanks for having me today. I want to prep one thing. We're, we're going to share communion together at the end of the message. And so if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't got the elements yet, they're on tables at the back of the room. So I go ahead and get up and get those now. You'll want those later in the message. And I want to piggyback off one other thing that Justin just said. Um, and, and Steve was celebrating this in our uh, huddle before service today. We're seeing lots of people return and regathering with us at both of our campuses, which is really exciting. But a lot of those people, they're new to Genesis. Some of them are new to the faith. And so it's been really cool for us to get to know them and follow up with them. And I, wanna, I just want to challenge you. If you see someone that you don't know, just assume that they're new. I always assume that people are new and they're like, yeah, Jerry, we've met like five times. Just assume that they're new and say hello. But also, if you are not currently serving somewhere, find a place to serve. Use your gifts and your talents and your abilities to help us build up this great church family. So when new people arrive, we are ready for them. Don't underestimate how God might want to use you. And you know, it might not be, it, it, you might be thinking, well, I need to be called to Gen Kids. No, maybe you just need to serve in Gen Kids. Because we need like 30 more people here at the Noblesville campus to open up that second hour. Or maybe you think it's just serving at the front door. It's not just serving at the front door. It's being a friendly face and welcoming people as they arrive. That is going to go a long, long way in helping people feel welcome and invited here. So please just take us up on this opportunity. And if you consider this to be your church home and you're not serving, please, we want to we challenge you to do that. You're going to help build up this great church family with us. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. I'm thankful for the words that we just sang about your goodness and your son, Jesus. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit, for your word and your church, all of these amazing gifts that you've made available to us. Would you help us today as we jump into your word to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be convicted so that when we leave here, um, we are walking in obedience with you. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence right now um, here and at Carmel and at your church all over the world. Help us to get our minds set on you so that in all that we do, we can walk in obedience with you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. So my father-in-law, Daryl, loves to give really good gifts. And I, I, typically they're pretty extravagant. He likes to give the kind of gifts that he knows that you want to buy for yourself, but he knows you're like, ah, I just, I could, but I feel a little guilty. This is his specialty. I've been in his family for over 20 years and he just loves to get you something and just to watch your face light up when you get it. And so I've just learned to receive his generosity. It's been hard, but I've learned to receive it. And this last Christmas, he got me something that I wanted for a while. It's a solo stove. It's a smokeless fire pit. It looks just like this. Maybe you've seen ads for these. Yes, it works. It's mostly smokeless. It's pretty amazing. And our family loves sitting out on the back deck and, and firing this guy up on a, on, a, on a cold night. We can enjoy the warmth of a fire or sometimes even on a hot summer evening, we can light a fire and watch it glow while the sun sets off in the west. We, we love it. But here's what's interesting. I noticed that when I took this out of the packaging for the very first time, there is literally zero setup on this thing. It can, you take it out of the box, it's ready to go. But there were all these really obvious warnings. And I think the people at Solo Stove know that some of us just need this stuff spelled out for us really, really clearly. And so the very, very first obvious warning on the package is this is intended for outdoor use only. In other words, don't use this in your living room. It's like, duh, like who? That's an open flame. But some of us need all the help we can get. So use this outside. Another obvious warning, don't use this on a wooden surface. Well, 
I've used it on my deck. It's fine. It's fine, right? Like nobody's got hurt yet. There's a, there's a warning about not using it uh, in windy conditions because, if, you know, fire can actually, an ash can jump out and catch things on fire. So don't do that. Keep children away from the solo stove because as you can imagine, that metal gets pretty hot. Seems really obvious. And then maybe my favorite warning don't use gasoline to start a fire in the solo stove. If you don't know that, that's really important. And if you disobey that, you're going you're gonna to get burned. Like bad things will happen, right? So there's all these obvious warnings. And so why? Why would the people at Solo Stove take it upon themselves to give us all of these obvious warnings? Well, here's the thing. They've created, they've invented this amazing product. And they want as many people as possible to enjoy it. But they also know like, Fire is, is fun, it's life-giving, it's comforting, but it can also be very dangerous the moment it gets outside of, of its contained surface, right? And it can burn people, it can damage property, and so that's why they spell this out for us so, so clearly. Now today, we're going to look at a gift that God, in his wisdom, has designed for us. When he created this gift, he had us in mind as human beings. It's an amazing gift, and he wants as many people as possible to enjoy it, but his word throughout scripture, it, it also compares this particular gift to fire. And we've already said this, fire can be really good or it can be really bad depending on how you handle it. And so maybe you're wondering, well, what is, what is this amazing gift? Well, I want you to know it's a little awkward to talk about, okay? Especially in mixed company like this. It's awkward if you have kids in the room and kids, I'm just gonna warn you, it's probably more awkward for you if your parents are in the room, no matter how old any of you are, okay? It's a three-letter word. It starts with S. I see some of you already squirming in your chairs. It starts with S, it ends with X, and it rhymes with sex because that's the gift. If you didn't put it together yet, that's... That's the gift. And this year as a church family, we're reading through scripture together. And several weeks ago, our, our reading plan took us through a book in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature known as the Song of Solomon. And if you didn't know this, if you haven't picked up on it yet, the Song of Solomon is all about love, romance, and sexual intimacy. And if talking about this topic makes you feel awkward, I want you to know you are in really good company. Because in ancient Hebrew cultures, rabbis, prohibited the reading of the Song of Solomon to anyone under the age of 13. They would say it's just too risque. Their little minds can't handle it. In the early church fathers in the third century, when they were deciding which books should be included in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're literally putting the Bible together as we know it. Many early church fathers said the Song of Solomon should not be included because it's just too explicit on this subject of sex. Now, if you're in high school or maybe you're in college, you're thinking, I can't wait to go home and do some Bible study. Like, what have I been missing out on all this time? And so just to be safe, I'm going to go ahead and issue a PG-13 rating because I know I'm looking out and I see some kiddos in the room. And, and, and so I just want to hit pause for a moment and say this. There's a couple of options. Leah Gollin has a room set up right now in the GSM room right around the corner where you, your kids can go and they can watch a video and do some crafts and things like that. So if you think, ah, this, I'm not ready for them to hear this yet, that is totally fine. You can get up and move over in that direction. You can go out to the lobby with your kids. The, the message will still be on out there, but you can distract them in a couple of different ways. You can do what many of you choose to do. If you can't use a child as an excuse to get you out of this awkward conversation, you can just nod off and pretend like you're asleep like many of you do anyway. It's cool. We see you. 
It's, I get it. It's a good, good way to get a nap. But I have done this, okay? And if you follow me on social media, you probably wondered, like, what's up with the sunglasses this week? I want to encourage you. I actually brought a couple of extra pairs of sunglasses up here. These are magic sunglasses. And when you put them on, you can't see me and I can't see you. So we can have a conversation about this really sensitive topic and you can just pretend to be invisible. So there you go. They're, they're right there. I'll just set them right there. Come and get them. They're pretty amazing. They're polarized and they're magical. They make you invisible, okay? But I want to say this. I want to say this. I tried to write this message with my four children in mind. They range in age from 15 down to eight. And my goal has been to teach on this subject in such a way that we could have age-appropriate conversations with our kids when the time is right. Does that mean they won't be awkward? No. I mean, anytime this comes up with my kids, they're like, Dad, please, I'd rather just go jump off the house right now. But I've tried to prepare it in such a way that we can all be a part of this conversation together, okay? So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you right now to go ahead and open up to the book of the Song of Solomon. If you don't have a Bible, there's a table in the back of the room. You can pick one up. That is our gift to, to you. If you have a paper Bible, here's your challenge. Try to open it up right to the middle. You might hit the Song of Solomon. It comes right after Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and right before the giant book of Isaiah. So that might help you find out where we're going. Now, some of you um, might know that this book is also referred to as the Song of Songs. And maybe you've wondered why. Well, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us why. It starts out this way. This is the New Living Translation. This is Solomon's Song of Songs. And the New Living Translation adds this, more wonderful than any other. And here's why. That phrase, Song of Songs, is a Hebrew idiom or an expression that just means the greatest song of all of Solomon's songs. And Solomon wrote over a thousand songs. And so this, this book is claiming this is the greatest of all of them. But I want you to think about this, this like phrase, Song of Psalms. We see other language throughout the Old Testament or throughout Scripture that helps us understand what the, what the writer is getting at here. I want you to think of the Jewish temple in the Old Testament. What was the most holy place called? It was called the Holy of Holies. It's the most holy place. And Jesus, how is Jesus described? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we see evidence in scripture. When we're talking about something really important, there's this phrase that's used. And so the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is claiming to be the greatest song ever written. It's a, it's a work of ancient Hebrew literature. And since it has been considered to be God's word for several thousand years, I think even though it might make us feel awkward, I think it's worth reading it and studying it and learning how we can apply it to our lives. Now, we don't know for sure if this was written by Solomon or about Solomon or in the wisdom tradition of Solomon. There's some theories on that. But what most commentators do agree is that it was written about Solomon and his relationship with his first wife. And I say first wife because if you don't know this, Solomon had like 700 wives and 300 sort of wives. So he had a lot of experience. I don't know if it's good or sounds like a bad experience, but this song seems to be about his very first relationship with his very first wife. And one of the things that makes this book so unique is that it's written in a, in a poetic, it's poetic in nature. It records an ongoing conversation between a wife who is referred to as beloved and a husband whose name is referred to as lover. And one of the key verses in understanding this book is found in the very last chapter, chapter 8. You've probably heard this read at a wedding before. It starts off like this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal on your arm. In other words, what the wife is saying to her husband 
is I want you to tattoo me on your soul. We are connected to one another. And then it says this, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. And then referring to love, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now we're going to revisit this passage in a little bit, but did you pick up on the fact that love is referred to as a fire here? This is an image we find all throughout scripture. And just, we, we, we've said this, you know this, fire is really good or can be very damaging depending on how you handle it. And so our goal is to help us learn how to handle this fire of love so that no one ends up burned in the process. Okay, so there's no more delays. I've given you all the backstory I can tell you. It's just time for us to jump in. So it's like a roller coaster. We've been doing the tick, 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 tick. Now we're over, we're just, we're heading down the hill. So everybody hold on. Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse one and two, it says this. This is, song, this is Solomon's song of songs, more wonderful than any other. Kiss me and kiss me again. For your love is sweeter than wine. We're two verses in and there's heavy kissing and there's a reference to alcohol. And some of you are like, I'm done. I'm running to the car. I don't want to know anymore. We're just getting started. Verse four, the wife says this, take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. And so we learn right away that these lovers, they're kissing and they're running on down to the love shack, baby. They're getting away. They want to get away from people. But there's something really important that we have to remember, when, even though this is how the book begins. This book is not written in sequential order. It's not chronological, okay? In other words, they didn't meet and make out and eventually get married. It's not written like that. The Song of Solomon is like seven or eight snapshots or pictures or poems that tell us about this couple this husband and wife and their relationship to one another, okay? So that's how it's put together. And chapter one begins with beloved speaking to lover. They're swapping spit. And for the next three chapters, they just whisper sweet nothings back and forth to each other, which leads us to chapter four where it gets a little steamy. This is where the husband speaks to his wife and he says, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Now I need to get the attention of every man, young or old in this room. If there is a pen in the seat back in front of you, grab it, take notes on your phone, do whatever you have to do. Cause Solomon is gonna show us why he was known for being the wisest man on the earth in his day. Take some notes. If you are in trouble with your wife, take some notes. I'm trying to help you. Take some notes. Solomon begins by complimenting his wife's beauty, and he does it by looking into her eyes. She's not, he's not an animal, and he's just going to attack her. He looks into her eyes, which tells us where he is looking. He compliments her beauty. She's not an object that he can obtain or a piece of meat for him to devour. He says, I want you to know how beautiful you are to me. So guys, write this down. It is really important. If you want to know how to get to a woman's heart, you need to look her in the eyes and be careful with how you use your words. Don't lie to her. Don't flatter her to get her into bed. Look her in the eyes and tell her how beautiful she is to you and get creative with it, okay? He continues, look at what he says. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. I tried that this week. Honey, your hair is so pretty. It reminds me of goats on a hillside. It did not go well. I'm still sleeping on the couch, okay? Now to his credit, this author, this would have been a very erotic verse 
back in the day because in ancient Jewish cultures, women, I don't know why, but women would wear their hair up in public. And there was a moment when they would get in private and she would let her hair down. We use that phrase, right? I'm going to let my hair down. And this is describing that moment when her hair is being let down to hit her shoulders. And the husband looks at his wife and says, how you doing? Right? He likes what he sees. This is a good thing. And so ladies, if you're taking notes in the same way that you thrive on your husband's words, men tend to be stimulated by what they see. And so allow them to be stimulated with their eyes. This is as important to him as his words are to you. And so after complimenting her hair, he moves down to her mouth and he says this, your teeth are as white as sheep that have just been freshly bathed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth is matched with its twin. In other words, he says, girl, you got all your teeth. You're so pretty. You're so pretty. Now, in all seriousness, the fact that he's looking at her mouth and complimenting her smile tells us she's probably smiling and they're having some fun. This isn't bad or dirty, okay? This is a husband and a wife enjoying one another and that is a good thing. And now it's time for the sunglasses because if you keep reading, he moves down her body from her hair to her teeth, to her lips, to her neck and well, he just keeps driving south from there and he gets to verse seven and he essentially says something to the effect of, you're the cutest thing I ever did see. I really love your peaches, wanna shake your tree. Now that, that's Steve Miller band. It's a great song, and if that lyric offends you, here's what I want you to do. You go read the rest of the Song of Solomon, and you're going to thank me for cleaning it up, because he gets a lot more in tune than that. But this is what he does say in verse 7. You're altogether beautiful, my darling. You're beautiful in every way. And so I want you to picture the scene. This wife is standing in front of her husband. She's totally exposed. And yet, because of his careful timing, in his tasteful words, she can feel totally secure standing in front of him. And all this sweet talk between these two, this husband and wife, it leads us to the first key in understanding sexual intimacy, and that's this. Sexual intimacy begins with emotional intimacy. Sexual intimacy begins with emotional intimacy. And this is why this is so important for us to know, because it's easy for us to assume that sex is just a physical act. But here, the Song of Solomon is teaching us that sexual intimacy begins with emotional intimacy where a man and a woman can get to know one another on a very deep and personal and emotional level before things ever get physical. This is how God has intended for this to work. And the husband creates this emotional intimacy by using his words to compliment his wife. He's creating that safe space. Now, let's hit pause for a second because I want to talk to not just married people, but single people and students. I want to just acknowledge our sexual urges are real and, and hormones are real. Like, you got to keep those in check. But what we're seeing here is God has designed sexual intimacy in such a way. He intends for us to have this kind of intimacy with one person where we can connect with them emotionally before we ever get physical. It's almost like his warning of saying, hey, if you don't want to get burned, start here first. And this is the kind of intimacy you can't microwave. You can't just get to know somebody in five minutes. It takes time and intentionality, patience and humility. And I would add a lot of prayer so you know how to handle each other appropriately. And if you rush through this, and I'm, I'm especially speaking to young people in the room, you rush through this, you will be a burn victim. 
and so will everyone else that you're sexually active with. And I just, I want you to know, I wish somebody had sat me down and warned me of that. So please pay close attention. So in chapter four, we find the husband using his words to create emotional intimacy with his wife. And this is what he's saying. I see you, you're beautiful. And this is how you make me feel. This is how I feel about you. And he's pretty smooth, right? Now, for the sake of time and for the potential embarrassment of all of us, I just want you to go home and read the rest of chapter four for yourself, okay? It gets a little spicy, but there's another important key to understanding sexual intimacy that we can pick up on here. And it's this emotional intimacy leads to physical intimacy. This is the way God has designed it to work. And and just for the record, there's a lot of physical intimacy recorded throughout the Song of Solomon. But remember, sex is a good thing. This is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the boundaries of a marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. It's an incredible gift. This was God's idea in the first place. This is how he designed it. This is how he created it. We don't need to be grossed out by it but we need to know how he created it to work. So a while back, this is a true story, by the way. A while back, I was talking to a good friend of mine. He was having the sex talk um, with his oldest son. They have four kids and they go through all the details and he was like, man, it was terribly awkward. And he was like, oh, dad, do we have to? And to dad's credit, he had the conversation. And so the son starts to do math and he's like, so wait a minute, there's four of us. So you and mom have probably done this like five or six times, maybe tops, and dad smiled and said, well, a little more frequent than that, right? Now, parents, it's important that you have those conversations with your kids. Every time I have this conversation with my kids, and it's an ongoing conversation, they would just assume jump out of a moving car or just face dive off our house. They don't like, I don't want to talk about this, but it's important that we talk about it. And we don't have to like, we got to be careful with how we talk about it, but this is God's gift to those of us that are married. Now, there's an interesting thing to point out here. The Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for sex is the word dode. And it literally means the mingling of the souls. I remember learning this several years ago. It's always stuck with me. Because God has designed sexual intimacy in such a way that when two people come together emotionally and physically in the physical act of sex, think about this, their souls, the most intimate part of our being, the most eternal part, the part of us that is more us than anything else. They mingle together. They merge with that other person, which brings us to a very important key in understanding sexual intimacy. And that's this sexual intimacy should, should result in spiritual intimacy. This is the part that tends to get thrown out the door. This is how God has designed this to work. It, sex, sexual intimacy draws a husband and a wife together, and that's good. Their souls mingle together, but it's also intended to point us to God, to draw us closer to him at the same time. And so this is why it's important that we don't just hook up with whoever we want, whenever we want, however we want, because when you do that, culture doesn't tell you this, you will be burned and so will others. You can spare yourself a lot of trouble. And so now that we've talked about that, I want to I break this down into three different categories of people. So there's those of us that are married. I want to speak to us first, okay? So how should we approach sexual intimacy? Well, this goes without saying, but if you're married, you should cherish sexual intimacy as a gift from God. And you're thinking, well, yeah, of course. But do you? Are you? I mean, to cherish it means you cultivate it. 
It's something you work out with your spouse. It's not a weapon. It's something that you cherish, that you enjoy together. And in God's great wisdom and goodness, he's designed it, remember, to draw us closer to one another, but also to him. But cherishing sexual intimacy, it requires a husband and wife to learn how to satisfy one another. And if you've been married longer than a day, you know that that can be really challenging, especially when you're arguing, especially when things aren't going well. And so here's what this means. When things get tough, you don't get to bail on your spouse and go look for a new one. You don't get to have more than one. You don't get to sleep around behind their back. You don't get to turn to pornography to please yourself. That is not how God has designed sexual intimacy to work. He has designed it to be a relationship between a husband and a wife, to be celebrated within the boundaries of marriage until death would separate you. And I realize that life happens and it doesn't always go that way, but this is God's design. This is why we cherish it. When Jesus was asked his take on marriage, so wise. He said, don't you know that in the very beginning, God created a man and a woman, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one. Jesus says, this is how God has designed it. He didn't change it. He said, this is what it is. And so for those of you that are married, I just want to remind you of this proverb from the 90s. When it comes to sexual intimacy with your spouse, don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. Don't go get a drink somewhere else. God has given you the gift of a spouse, and so enjoy it there. Now, this all sounds good, right? But if you're single, you're probably thinking, yeah, but what about me? Does that mean that I'm incomplete until I'm married? And no, it does not. And I think we have great evidence for this because Jesus was single, and he was the most complete person, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's ever walked the face of the planet in his relationship with God as his heavenly father redefines how we relate with God. So you do not have to be married to be complete. But I do think that there's wisdom when it comes to approaching sexual intimacy that you respect the boundaries that God has put in place. And I know you're thinking, oh, I don't want to hear that. I've already broken that. That's, that's just so difficult well, maybe, but if God has designed it to work in this way, maybe God's saying, I don't want you to get burned. You're going to have a scar. So wait for the right person that you connect with emotionally and then physically and then spiritually. This is how God has designed it to work. Now, two weeks ago on a Thursday night, our small group talked about this. I have a bunch of 20-somethings in our group some of them are married, many of them are single, and I got their, their take on this. We had a great conversation, great conversation. And I said, I, for those of you that are single, I need your help. And by the way, I messed this up when I was single. I was brand new to following Jesus, but that's really not a good excuse. I knew better anyway. So I said, help me. Like, what would you want me to say to single people in our church family? A couple things. There's a young lady that said, I grew up in a great church, but they always said, yeah, sex is great, just don't. Sex is great, just don't. Just don't, just don't, just don't. She's like, I know that's right, but they never told me how to fill that in. And so now, like, she's made, and, and she would admit this. She's like, I've made so many mistakes, and I carry around a lot of baggage, but now that I'm dating this man that I love, and I think we're going to get married, we're finding ways to use our time better. So they cook through a cookbook together. They walk the dog together. They are very careful with how they spend their time alone 
so that they can avoid burning one another before they're married. And then there's another young guy in my, my group. He was in, a, he was in a, an engagement, and at the very end, she broke it off, like a month before the wedding. Devastating. But since then, he has started to walk with Jesus, and he has started praying for his future spouse every night. I wish I had been wise enough to do that. And so for you young people, for you single people, start doing that. Instead of just like avoiding sex, wait, respect it, but pray for your future spouse so you can connect with the person that God intends. And I'm not promising that you're gonna get married. But God in his wisdom says, look, I'm telling you, it's better to wait. And then finally, I wanna talk to students. And look, I get it. I'm old, I got lots of gray hair. I'm a dad, I make terrible dad jokes. I understand all the reasons you wouldn't wanna listen to me. First and foremost, because I did not take the advice that I'm giving you. And I had to tell that to my two oldest boys uh, last week before we uh, preached on this. I said, I just want you boys to know I'm gonna give people some advice tomorrow that I wish I had followed. And I don't want you to think I'm being a hypocrite, but I don't want you to get burned. And so students, I'd say the same to you. When it comes to this very important topic of sexual intimacy, I would just, gosh, if I could, I beg you, please be wise and wait on it. Please be wise and wait on it. You will not regret it because we live in a culture that says there's no boundaries. You can have sex with whoever, whenever, however you want, but the culture doesn't tell you you're gonna get burned. Nobody tells you that. God's word does, but everybody else that's enjoying life, and I'm telling you, I, I have burned, I have burned scars. And so do many of us in this room. Please wait. And the other thing is the culture teaches that sex is a selfish act. And it's about what you can do right now to make yourself feel good. That is not how God's word talks about it. That's why sex is to be enjoyed in the boundaries of a marriage between a husband and a wife so you can care for one another's needs. In the Song of Solomon, this is so cool, it talks about this on three different occasions. In chapter two, chapter three, and chapter eight, there is a phrase that's repeated over and over again. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And I love how one commentator says this. They summarize it this way. Let love progress and grow until it's matured and fruitful, making it a genuinely pleasing relationship. In other words, do not rush this or you will be burned. Now, I need, this is crowd participation. And I'm gonna go ahead and raise both of my hands on this one. How many of you adults remember in high school or in college being in a relationship because you wanted to experience love like everyone else around you, only to realize that it was not good, you weren't good for them, they weren't good for you. You ended up wasting a lot of time. You got burned in the process and you wish you could go back and do it all. I'm raising both of my hands. How many of you? Now, students, look around the room. These are people that are saying, look, you don't want to get burned. You don't want to get burned. None of us are perfect. We're all going to struggle through this. But God in his wisdom has said, just wait, trust me, keep it contained. Now, on this topic, we, we need to talk about sexual sin. And I think it's broad, but I think we can boil it down to one really dangerous word, and that's the word lust. Lust is defined as an intense or an unrestrained sexual craving for someone that is not your spouse. And I want you to listen to how Job, several thousand years ago, describes 
the sin of lust. He says this, for lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. It's a fire that burns all the way to hell. He talks about it not just being a fire, but a fire that will burn you all the way to hell. Now, I'm not saying that to make anyone feel bad. Because let's be honest, we have all fallen. Jesus says this is a heart issue. I'm not condemning you, but Job is saying, you gotta be real careful. It'll burn you all the way to hell. The book of Proverbs, speaking on lust, says this, can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? The answer is no. The dangerous thing about lust is we don't think it hurts anybody else. We just think, oh, it's happening up here. But here's the thing, lust will rot your heart from the inside out. And I want you to hear what Jesus had to say on this, this subject. He did not mince words. Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than to, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus connects the actions uh, he, he connects the act of lust with the actions of our eyes and the actions of our hands. And since there's young people in the room, I'm going to stop where Jesus does. I'm not going to go any further. But I think we all kind of know what he's talking about here, right? He, in his love and his kindness and his goodness, he's, he's warning us. He's saying, please, please be careful. Interesting. He talks about lust ending up in hell also. So I want to say this. I think the fact that Jesus says this is a hard issue says we're all going to fall here every single one of us, myself included. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, this is really important. When we fall, sexually or otherwise, we confess that to somebody, somebody that we trust. We confess it, and then we move forward in repentance. And repentance just means if we're walking away from God, we turn around and we walk back to God. And the way that we repent is that we, we cherish this gift, whether we are married single or a student. We cherish this gift of sexual intimacy. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I think what we see in God's word is he says, I promise you, it'll, it'll be better. Now, one of the reasons, or actually the reason that I chose to preach through this book this summer was because I've always been taught that every book in scripture points us back to Jesus. And I read the Song of Solomon, and I was like, I don't know, like, <laughs> where, how? It's so explicit. Well, fascinating, I learned that it actually points back to Jesus in lots of ways. I mentioned this earlier, but a lot of commentators believe that this is a story of Solomon and his relationship with his very first wife. And in chapter one, we learn that she was a shepherdess. She worked with her brothers who were shepherds keeping sheep. And she refers to her husband as a shepherd. And so there's a pretty good indication that Solomon was out in the fields one day overlooking, you know, people that are watching over his sheep on his land. And he sees this beautiful young lady and he's like, I want to get to meet her. But get this, apparently he hid his identity as king and he became a shepherd so that he could get to know her on her turf. She wouldn't be overwhelmed by the fact that he was the king and they began to love one another. Well, here's the connection. All the writers of the New Testament tell us that's what Jesus has done for us. He's eternal. He was there at the beginning. He created everything that existed. But at some point, he decided to leave the comforts of heaven and to be born as a helpless baby, a peasant, a poor peasant. And he experienced life just like me and you. So that anyone that would come to know him and put their trust in him would be forgiven of their sins, 
would be filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit, would be adopted into God's family, and all the righteousness of Jesus would be credited to us. He came to us to make that possible. And this is why the writers of the New Testament refer to the church, the people of the church, as the bride of Christ, and Jesus is our groom. And here's the exciting thing. The book of Revelation says there will be a day that we're all looking forward to called the wedding feast of the Lamb. You ever get emotional at a wedding when the bride comes down the center aisle? And and like, I love doing weddings and looking over at the groom and watching them cry as they see their bride come forward. That's the day we're looking forward to. When we meet Jesus face to face, there is a wedding planned in the future where we will get to meet him and it's going to be the best party ever. And so it's important that we, we learn how all of this ties together. But in Song of Solomon 8, I learned this. We already talked about this passage. Chapter 6, it says this. For love is as strong as death. Love, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This is the only time God's name is mentioned in the book of Song of Solomon. And many English translations do not translate it this way. The English Standard Version does. And here's the, here's the point. Love as great and powerful and beautiful and wonderful and sexual intimacy between two, two people, as great as it is, it is only a flash. It is a small taste of the divine love that God has for us, his complete and perfect and eternal love for us. And that's the point that the author is making. It takes us back to Jesus and why he came for us. And Jesus knew this. In John 17, moments before he's arrested and later crucified, Jesus prays for his followers and he says this. He's speaking to God on behalf of his disciples and says, now this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom they have sent. The word know is the word gnosko. It, it means it's a knowledge grounded on personal experience or to be intimately acquainted with someone. Jesus used this same word in John 10 and when he said he wants his followers to know, to gnosko him in a way that he knows God. He is talking about a deeply personal and intimate relationship with him. But here's what's interesting. Gnosko is also a Jewish idiom or an expression for the act of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, which is really weird when you think about your relationship with Jesus. But here's what Jesus is saying. This is what he's praying. Father, I want my followers to know you the way I do and to know me in that same way. I want them to know me on a deeply emotional and an extremely intimate level, a way that's so powerful. Think about this. In the same way that physical intimacy between a man and a woman can produce a brand new life, Jesus says, I want them to experience a brand new life in you that moves beyond the physical and that extends into eternity. I think that's fascinating. That's Jesus' prayer for his followers. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, we can celebrate and worship him because we will get to experience something that's far greater than anything we'll experience here. But I want to invite anyone that does not know Jesus in this way to know him in this way today. That is his invitation to you. You can surrender to him. You can put your trust and faith in his death and for whatever you've done, sexual or otherwise, he will forgive it, fill you with his spirit, give you all of his righteousness so that you can enter into God's eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I'm I'm so thankful that you speak on this delicate subject. It's not awkward to you, though. 
you've created it and you've designed it to work in a certain way. And so we thank you. I pray for those of us that are married that we would cherish the gift of sexual intimacy. We would use it to draw close to our spouse. We would enjoy it and celebrate and worship you in it and through it. But I also pray for those that are single that long to be united with a spouse. Would you help them to wait patiently on you and to respect the boundaries that you've set? And for students, oh God, please. Would you please protect our students from burning themselves and others? I pray for anyone that doesn't know you, Jesus, that they would turn to you today. They would confess their sins to you. They would receive your gift of eternal life and they would begin walking with you today. Thank you for the way you speak to us in your word. We love you. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.